The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, who are we that you would love us so unreasonably? We know our sins, Father. We know the depths of our sins. And yet out of your great storehouse of love, you have captured our hearts in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would use this remarkable testimony and vow of Ruth to Naomi to show us truly how infinitely we are loved in Christ. And in showing that to us, Father, I pray that we would love you and love one another as Christ loves us. I ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do by your Spirit, and that is go to those deep places in our hearts, to those recesses that are asleep, maybe still dead for some, and that you would make us alive, and that you would stir in us such an incredible very reasonable love for you because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ that we would leave here as a different people that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your son Lord I I ask that you would do that to bless us in that way that we might be a people truly blessed living in the unreasonable love that you have for us And I I pray you would do that, that we might bless those around us, certainly one another and those in our mission field who have yet to hear about the great love of Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would use this story in Ruth to glorify yourself this morning. Make yourself known to us, maybe in ways we've never seen before, that we might respond to you in spirit, in truth, and with an unreasonable love, I pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. Unreasonable love indeed. You cannot contemplate your sin and the love that God has for you in Christ and not say unreasonable, unbelievable, how could he love a sinner like me? We have a story today. We're actually going to continue in a story today that gives us a narrative to see the love of Christ. It's one of the reasons that I I love preaching narratives and I love the Old Testament because the Old Testament teaches us things, truths, through stories. If you were here with us last week, we we started our journey in, in the book of Ruth by sojourning with Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons into hostile territory into the country of Moab. We know that we're in the days of Judges. There was a famine in the land of Israel, and so Elimelech decides, I'm going to take my family, and instead of starve to death in Bethlehem, I'm going to go to Moab and try to find some food. And so he does, thinking that they're going to find blessing in Moab, but instead they they find themselves cursed. Elimelech, probably within days or months, dies, and he leaves Naomi and Malon and Kilion, their two sons, now widowed, and orphaned in a foreign enemy land. And instead of Naomi going back, which she should have done to Israel, instead of going back to her home and to her people and to her God, 
She remains in Moab. Her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they, they marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, of course. And then 10 years pass, and they don't have any children, so there's a, a curse upon the wombs of those women. And then Malon and Kilion die. And we, we end our introduction in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5, and this is, this is really the, the climactic crisis of the entire book that's not resolved until we get to chapter 4, the very end of the book. The narrator says, both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, speaking of Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husbands. So instead of Moab providing blessing for the family, Naomi finds herself a sonless widow in enemy territory with her only options being prostitution, slavery, or begging. In other words, Naomi finds herself at the end of verse 5 as good as dead. In fact, it would probably be better off that she were dead in this situation. Naomi's dire situation is the result, the direct result of both her and her husband's rebellion against God's clearly revealed word. But the incredible part of this entire story is that God does not leave her like this. It is God's purpose plan to deliver Naomi out of virtual death in Moab and back into a relationship with him and his people. She gets word that God has visited Israel. In other words, God intervened, broke the famine, brought food back, and through this hearing of these divine graces, Naomi says, I, I'm going to go home. I'm, I'm going to go back and, and put my, my future in the hands of God. And so she rises with her two daughters-in-law, with Orpah and with Ruth, and they head back. Look at verse 7. So she, Naomi, set out from the place where she was, she was in the fields of Moab, with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah, that's Orpah and Ruth, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And this is where we're going to pick up our story this week. We're going to join our three widows heading back to Judah. And as we do, I, I want you to ask one single question. You might think this question a bit odd, but it will make sense as the story plays itself out. I want you to ask this question. Is being reasonable always best? Is, is doing the rational, logical, reasonable thing always the most profitable thing? And is it always the most pleasing thing to the Lord to do that which is reasonable and that which is rational? Now I ask this question because most of you were raised, if you were raised here in the West and you've been influenced by the age of reason, during the 17th and 18th centuries, a, a slew of philosophers from Hobbes, Descartes, Locke, Hume, people you know, Rousseau, they came and they started teaching that reason was the highest order of truth. And they started talking about reason instead of theology and started talking about science instead of faith. And this permeated the Western world and even does so today. You probably studied it in school as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason as though anything prior to that was what? Unreasonable, certainly faith in God, or the word of God, unreasonable. In other words, in the Western world, we believe that we have, we have power in ourselves, we have the power of our minds to use logic and reason and what we can observe to, to glean and discern truth, to make all of our decisions based upon what we discern as reasonable. And that, of course, means simultaneously that anything that's not aligned with scientific truth Anything that requires faith 
or theology or God becomes unreasonable. So is that true? Is, is the word of God in faith, is it unreasonable to believe and live in accordance with God's word at times when it calls us to be unreasonable in how we live here in this world? I'm going to attempt to answer that with you as we, again, tell this story. And I'm going to give you three more scenes today. Three scenes to help you contemplate whether or not being reasonable is always the best thing to do in light of who God is and his word. Scene number one, be reasonable. Scene number two, no, really, be reasonable. That's scene number two. And scene number three is, okay, love me unreasonably. This is Naomi's response to Orpah and Ruth. Scene one, be reasonable. Scene two, no, really, be reasonable. And scene three, okay, love me unreasonably. Those will make sense in a little bit. Scene number one, be reasonable. So unlike last week where in verses one through six, it was the narrator doing most of the talking, the narrator told us about the characters and what they were doing. This week, in verses 7 through 18, we actually see they're, they're dialoguing one to another. And so we learn about, we'll learn about Ruth and, and Orpah and, and Naomi from what they say and the decisions they make. And, and they have to make some really difficult decisions, life and death decisions, stay in Moab or, or leave. And what are the implications that follow? Look at the latter part of verse 7 with me. The narrator says they, speaking now of Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now, in the cultural context, you would have expected her to say, go to your father's house, right? Their husbands are dead. They lost their covering. The right protection and provision would come again from their father. But she says, return to your mother's house because what were they doing? They were following their mother-in-law to go to their mother-in-law's house. And so Naomi says, listen, that's, this is not reasonable. This is not rational. This is not logical. You shouldn't follow me. Go home to your mother's house. Go under your father's care. Receive the protection and provision that he can provide that Naomi's saying, I can't provide for you. In other words, you as two Moabite women following me to Judah is probably not a good idea. It's not reasonable. It's not rational. So Naomi says that to them, and then she asks for a blessing. Look at, verse, uh, look at the latter part of verse 8. She asks for God to be kind to them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. So she said, because of how you've loved me and loved my sons, I'm going to pray that God loves you and treats you kindly like that too. And then she says in verse 9, she goes a little further, and she said, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. You say, wait, they're not married, their husbands are dead. She's asking for what? that they actually are able to remarry, not stay in their father's house until they die, but, but find a husband and, and have children and, and enjoy a long life in a home of their own. In other words, Naomi wants what's best for her daughters-in-law, and so she, she petitions Yahweh to do just that. And then the latter part of verse 9, which is a, a, the beginning of a, a tension that we're seeing amongst these women, then she kissed them, Naomi kissed them, and they all three, now it's plural, they all three lifted up their voices and they wept. <clears throat> now when you're in the Old Testament, you hear about people lifting up their voices and you're weeping, you must not think 21st century crying. We don't know how to cry today, and we don't know how to, to, to wail today. If you've heard Eastern wailing, these women were crying out at the top of their voices 
they were, they were, their faces were covered with tears and they were showing one to another their, their hearts and how broken they were. Right? This was an expression of the internal anguish of being separated from the only family they had known for the past 10 years that they were going to be leaving this woman they loved so much. Verse 10, and they, Orpah and Ruth, said to her, said to Naomi, no, we will return with you to your people. So neither are persuaded by Naomi's reasoning. They refuse to do the reasonable thing, which is to go home and be cared for, and they're going to attach their futures as two Moabite women to a Jewish widow heading back to Judah, enemies of their own people. Now, given all the grief these two women experienced, their husbands are dead, their wombs are barren, and they find themselves in absolute economic crisis, not knowing how they're going to survive. They still want to attach their lives and their future to their mother-in-law, Naomi. Rather than go back to their families and their land and their people and their gods, they said, no, we're going to go with you. It's truly an amazing expression of love. And it should cause us to think, wow, do I love like that too? So Naomi fails in convincing him to go home. And so she redoubles her efforts. Scene number two, no, really, be reasonable. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? She's not asking them a question. This is, a, this is rhetorical criticism. She's saying, why are you going to come with me? I, I have nothing to offer you. I have no hope for you. You're better going home than you are coming with me. And then she, she puts on her lawyer hat, and she enters the courtroom, and she says, I'm going to give you a really good reason, actually a couple really good reasons, why you need to go home and stop following me. Look at the latter part of verse 11. She says, Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, verse 13, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? In other words, he's saying it's so unreasonable that you come with me. Elimelech's dead. Naomi's not pregnant, and even if she were to get married and have a baby right away, you're talking, what, 15 years, 16 years, 17 years for Orpah and for Ruth to wait? By that time, what? They wouldn't be able to bear children either. In other words, there's no compelling reason for them to follow Naomi back to Judah. The bottom line, she's saying, listen, it's really, really reasonable for you to listen to me and to go home. Stop following me. I had this picture of you know, Naomi's going, it's like these, these two puppies behind her, and she keeps turning around saying, go home. And they, they say, no, we're going to follow you. They're not puppies, I know that, but their, their love for Naomi is revealed as such. But then Naomi, she's, she's probably looking at their faces, and they're like, no, we're going, no, we're going. She's like, all right. So now she's going to drop a hammer, and this is a hammer. We may not see it as such, but it is a big deal. Look at the latter part of verse 13. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of God has gone out against me. So this is an emphatic, no, you need to go home. And she gives them an even more compelling reason than marriage, children, and a happily ever after life. She's essentially saying, listen, I'm a bitter old woman and God's hand has come against me. And if you follow me, you're attaching the curse that God has put upon me to yourselves. In other words, uh, I'm going to bring you harm. I'm going to bring you suffering because God's suffering is upon me. Now, it's fascinating here, and we have to 
read between the lines a little bit, it sounds like Naomi is saying that God has brought a curse upon her unprovoked. Right? Like she's saying the same hand that brought the plagues upon Egypt or the same hand that killed that generation of Israelites in the desert. She's saying, that hand is upon me. I am a bitter woman because God is against me. His hand is against me. She experienced the famine, the sojourn to Moab. Her husband dies, her sons die, her daughters-in-law are barren, and they're in absolute economic crisis. And so Naomi is saying, look with your eyes at my life. I am cursed by God. And so she actually, she puts herself into that position of, of Jonah, saying, throw me overboard and save yourself. Now, it's interesting, some of the commentators, they fight really hard to put Naomi in a positive light. Um, one commentator said this. I'm laughing because it's just, I'm not buying it. <clears throat> but this is what he thought. He said, Naomi's ra- remarks, they're as a bitter complaint cloaked in a firm faith like that of Job's. And I'm, hmm, I'm not seeing it. Maybe so, maybe I'm just missing it. But it sounds like she's really bitter and it sounds like she's blaming God for everything that's happened to her as though she or Limelech or, or, or Malon or Kelan did anything against God's law to bring about the curse of violating the covenant. That's what it, it sounds like to me. Um, but she is saying, regardless, she's saying to, to Orpah and to Ruth, listen, I'm, I'm going to bring you suffering. Be like the sailors on the boat, toss me overboard like Jonah and, and save yourself. Get away from me, separate yourself from me. And that would have, my beloved, that would have made sense then. Um, the culture then believed that everybody was either blessed or cursed by a god or gods. And so if you got all this suffering going on in your life, just like, remember our, our, our three friends of Job, they wanted to know, what did you do, Job? Confess it, Job, and God will stop it, right? So uh, Orpah and Ruth are thinking, all right, you know, we, we have seen a lot of horrible things happen to you, Naomi. Maybe you are cursed by God. Certainly that would have been going through their thinking process. Look at verse 14. So round two now of the weeping and wailing. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. All three of them. But something different happens this time. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Some translations they insert and said goodbye. She left. We know that from the next verse. She, she went home. And Ruth clung to her. So Orpah sold. Naomi sold her. She thinks to herself, I, wait a second, I, I want to be married. I want to have children. That's a good thing, by the way. She says, I, I, want to, I want to have children and grandchildren. And in my old age, I want to be cared for. Also a very good thing. Nothing wrong with that desire that Orpah had. And she's probably thinking, yeah, you know what? Naomi, you have been cursed several years. And if I'm part of you, if I follow you, I might suffer too. So, so Orpah takes the reasonable counsel from Naomi and she goes back to her parents' house in Moab. She departs from the family of three to join her family in Moab. We never hear about her again. We never hear another word in all of Scripture about what happened to her. From a worldly perspective, we would have to argue that she did the reasonable thing. She put aside her emotions, probably for Naomi and for Ruth, and she did what was logical. Ruth, on the other hand, the the narrator actually uses the word cling. 
right? You have this image of her just wrapped around Naomi, holding on as Orpah walks away in the distance. And, and she uses that, the narrator uses that term, I believe, in order to magnify the juxtaposition between Orpah leaving and Ruth staying, right? Orpah hears reason, and she follows reason. She goes, I'm going to go home. Ruth hears reason and says, I'm staying. I'm going to be illogical. I'm going to be emotional. I'm making a decision to follow you, Naomi, no matter what. Now, before we consider Ruth and her incredible response, and it really is, verses 16 and 17 are those verses you just can't read and not be stirred. We must see that Orpah did what most of us would have done. You're not Ruth in the story. You're Orpah in the story. Especially as a, a Westerner. You would, you would hear the counsel and you would want to be reasonable. You'd want to be married. You'd want to have children. You wouldn't want to starve to death in your old age. And you certainly wouldn't want to attach yourself to someone who might be cursed by God. From a contemporary Western perspective, Orpah here is, would be praised for her decision. We would say she made the right decision. She was rational. She was reasonable. She put herself, listen, all your might, her interests, her future, first. Which is what we're supposed to do, right? That's what we're taught to do. The reasonable thing is to put her interest above others. Now, the narrator does not criticize Orpah, and nor will we, does not criticize. But the narrator does use her leaving to elevate Ruth's decision to stay. He uses her reasonable departure to magnify the unreasonable faithfulness that Ruth has for Naomi. And as our story develops over the next several weeks, you're going to see that both Ruth and Naomi were incredibly blessed by this unreasonable decision to remain faithful. Certainly Ruth to Naomi and then Naomi to Ruth. And it ought to, I believe it ought to cause us, listen, it ought to cause us to question whether or not we worship reason in our own lives. We say we follow Christ, but is Christ the one we listen to most? Or do we make decisions primarily, if not always, based upon what is reasonable? Do you as a Christian in a Western world, raised in a culture of reason, follow reason or do you follow Christ? You see, the 19th century French philosopher, Henry Bergson, he was right when he said this about modern man, and I think this applies to all of us. He said this, listen, reason compels our respect and commands our obedience, but we must add that there are men behind reason who have made mankind divine, made mankind God, and who have thus stamped a divine character on reason. In other words, reason is like God. Modern man no longer sees God upon the throne and his word is the final arbiter of truth. Modern man has ascended the throne and we've replaced God with reason. Worldly reason, man's reason. Bergenson said that the essential attribute of man is reason. Now, that's an amazing thing. I thought we were made in the image of God. The Bible says that we were made in the image of God to serve God and love God and follow God and listen to him and obey his commandments. 
that our essential attribute is being a created being in his image, not our minds and not our reason and not our logic. The problem for you as a modern Western Christian is that the Word of God often calls you to be unreasonable from a worldly perspective. That you can't open up your New Testament and read for more than five minutes and think, wow, that's unreasonable according to my flesh. That's unreasonable according to the ways of the world. The reasonable thing according to the world is to what? To love yourself above all else and above all others. In fact, that's actually taught as logical thinking. A very prominent psychiatrist put it like this. It is reasonable to love ourselves by meeting our own needs, being assertive, prioritizing our health and our well-being. I love this one. Avoiding people who don't support us or build us up, valuing our feelings and pursuing our own interests and goals above all else. Rational, reasonable, self-love in the modern world. In other words, what? Doing always what Orpah did. Doing what Orpah did. Looking at your situation, thinking, well, what's best for me? I'm, I'm going home. And never, ever doing what Ruth did. Exercising an unreasonable love for the sole well-being of someone else. So scene number one, we saw Naomi's call for Orpah and Ruth to be reasonable. Scene two, to really be reasonable. And then something dramatically changes in scene three. In scene three, doing what is reasonable gives way to doing what is sacrificial and what is faithful and what is ultimately loving. Are you still with me? I lost you with the French philosophy. Did I do that? Did I lose you with that? I, I can't. Okay, so let's, let's regain our bearings here. Scene three. Okay, Naomi says, love me unreasonably. <clears throat> Look at verse 15. Verse 15, and she, Naomi, said, speaking to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I mean, Naomi's literally pointing, going, that's reason. She's being logical. She's being sensible. She's going home. Naomi, go home. I mean, Ruth, you go home too. Right now. Ruth's response, verse 16. Do not urge me, and she was saying it firmly. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Ruth fully understands the implications of this statement. You realize that, right? She knows that if she follows Naomi into Judah, she may die a sonless widow. She may, as a Moabite woman, actually be treated very, very poorly in Judah. And she's fully aware that if, in fact, God's hand is against Naomi, then God's hand's going to be against her if she attaches herself to Naomi. So she's, she's received the full weight of counsel from Naomi. She believes the consequences of remaining may be severe, but nonetheless, Ruth, fully aware of all these unreasonable aspects, the illogical thinking of staying, she not only stays with Naomi, she enters into a binding death-do-you-part covenant. Look at the latter part of 16. She says, for where you go, oh, listen, with all your might, because this is Christ's love for you, 
And this is how he calls us to love others. For where you go, Ruth says, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Amen. It sounds more like a, a wedding vow, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound... And I know some of you daughter-in-laws, you have precious relationships with your mothers-in-law. But this, this is not common in the daughter-in-law, mother-in-law world. This, this vow is so extreme. The, the vow of commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi, in fact, it's, it's almost unmatched in Scripture to find this type of sacrificial love and faithfulness to another person for the soul being, well-being of that other person completely dying to oneself. And that's exactly what Ruth is doing here. She's saying, listen, heart, mind, soul, strength, I'm committing to you, Naomi, to your future, to your well-being, and to even to your afterlife. I'm committing that to you because I love you. Because I love you. How extreme is this? We, we actually don't see it. It's hard to see from the text and certainly not being in in the culture, but I, I want to show you how extreme this covenant is. The latter part of verse 16, she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, wherever you are, I'm going to be there, whether you like it or not. But then she says something that is truly extraordinary. She says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You see, in Ruth's time, a person received their identity from their community. We receive our identities by the accolades we get, Right? Our careers, our diplomas, the amount of money we make, the friends that we have, positions of power, authority. That's how we identify ourselves. Not in Ruth's time. A person's identity came from their community and their role as a member of that community. So for Ruth to say, your people shall be my, my people and your God, my God, she's essentially saying this, I will completely die to myself. Who I am as a Moabite woman will, woman will be no more. She says, I'm willing to give up Every vestige of my identification that makes me who I am, my country, my people, my gods, Naomi, to help you restore yours. She's restoring Naomi's identity as a Jew amongst her people and her God, Yahweh. She says, I'm going to give up everything for your well-being. And then she goes one step further. Verse 17, she says, where I die, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And most of us think, well, what's the big deal with that? In ancient times, gods were localized to places or to countries. So the burial site was a really big deal. Your afterlife was attached to the location you were buried because that's the area where that god watched over that particular place. Kamash was the pagan god of Moab. And so to be buried outside of Moab meant to be buried outside of the protection and provision of her god, Chemosh. For Ruth, it meant putting her soul, her afterlife, in jeopardy. That she might be buried, she would be buried with Naomi's family and Naomi's plot in a foreign land and a foreign god and lose that protection. She understood that she could do this, though, because that meant that Naomi would be buried under the protection of Yahweh in the land of Judah and receive his protection in the afterlife. So she says to Naomi, I'm gonna give up my identity, totally. I'm gonna forsake my afterlife for you. And then she binds herself to these promises 
with an oath. Look at verse 17, the latter part again. She said, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know what she's doing? She's evoking, a, at that time, a Near Eastern curse that would solemnize the covenant that she's making. She's saying, you're God, Naomi. You're Yahweh, who we know to be real and powerful. She's saying, if I, do, if I break this covenant with you, if I do anything to forsake you before I die, may your God do more so to me. In other words, she's saying, by pain of death, I'm going to give up my future marriage, future children, future home. I'm going to give up my people, my land, my gods, and maybe even my afterlife. I'm going to literally give up everything, Naomi, so that you can have your name, your people, and your God back. Unreasonable is a word that does not fit here. I, I was thinking, what, is, what's more, what can be more extreme? Extremely unreasonable, totally unreasonable, completely illogical, foolish thinking. Those all work. That's how extreme Ruth's love is for Naomi. She leaves Naomi speechless. Look at verse 18. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <laughs> what, what else can she say? She said, listen, I may be cursed. I, I think that would be sufficient. Follow me, you might be cursed too. She's not buying it. Ruth's mind is made up, and Ruth unites herself to Naomi, whether Naomi likes it or not, in a binding until death do we part covenant to provide and protect and watch out and love Naomi. A completely 100% selfless expression of love. In subsequent chapters, we're going to see that Ruth remained devoted. She, she wasn't just saying it. I mean, this would be, these verses would be amazing but if, if they're not fulfilled, then it's hypocrisy. So she not only, Ruth not only will fulfill this promise in the upcoming episodes of our story, but we also see that it changed Naomi. We have Naomi right now in chapter one, these first introductory verses. Naomi is a bitter, sunless widow who's angry with God and believes that God has cursed her. This is how the story begins. The story is going to end with Naomi being blessed by God, tremendously blessed by God, completely restored in her old age, blessed, not cursed, and praising God with her lips. In other words, Ruth's unreasonable decision, her unreasonable love for Naomi, transforms Naomi into a completely different person. Ruth's unreasonable love for Naomi and what makes this such a great story and the reason that we love it so much, it's not just the example that we have. We know that these stories point to something else. We know that this story in particular points to the, the hope that we too, our, our bitterness of heart, our being under God's curse because of our sin, our, our cursing God rather than praising God, we know that can become overcome too because we know, we know that Ruth points to a greater Ruth. We know this. We know this story was given to us and is so beloved by Jew and Christian alike because it points to a savior, someone who would come and do a most unreasonable thing for sinful man. We know that, of course, that 
the greater Ruth to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know that, that he decided, instead of, instead of remaining upon his throne and reasonably judging every man, woman, and child for their sins, instead of sitting as judge and, and casting down judgment that renders every man, woman, and child in rebellion against him into the lake of fire, Jesus, out of his unreasonable love for us, said, I'm going to descend from my throne. I'm going to enter into this mess of mankind. And I'm going to exercise the most unreasonable, most illogical, most Ruth-like love the world's ever seen. You see, my beloved, by Jesus taking on flesh and becoming a man, Jesus, like Ruth to Naomi, he attached himself to mankind. He said, I'm, I'm becoming one of you as God. He came in the flesh so he could what? So he could go where we go, so he could lodge where we lodge, so he could die in the place we were supposed to die. On a Roman cross, as a sinner, Jesus Christ experienced the full wrath, the full reasonable wrath that you and I deserve as sinners in rebellion against our Creator. Like Ruth, we know that Jesus gave up his identity entirely. Paul said in Philippians 2.6 that Jesus being in very nature God, what? He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, what? Even death on a cross. He gave up his identity to give you a new one. Right, without Christ, you are a sinner deserving of judgment. In Christ, your son, a daughter of God the Father, a citizen of the kingdom. He gave up his, his identity to give you a new identity. He gave up his family. He gave up his friends, his disciples. He gave up, he gave up his freedom by being arrested, falsely accused, beaten, and then nailed to a cross in order to set us free. He gave up his city by being crucified outside the city gates. He gave, up, he gave up his father. You know that. He cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the virtual reality of our eternal separation from God the Father. Our true eternal hell. He experienced in full so that we could have God and never be forsaken by him. My beloved, like Ruth to Naomi, Jesus refused to be reasonable with you. Do you know that? He refused to be reasonable with you. He refused to leave you with your bitter heart, cursed by God, not praising God with your mouth, destined for destruction. He refused to leave you like that so you could become a son or daughter of his father. We can say, literally, that Christ gave up everything. He gave up his identity. He gave up his father, his family, his home, his eternity to have you for eternity. In her covenant promise that Ruth made to Naomi, look at the latter part of verse 17 again. She said, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
In Jesus' covenant promise to you, to all who repent and believe, Jesus said this, May the Lord do so to me and more also, so that not even death parts me from you. And God did. God poured out on Christ all the eternal, forever and ever reasonable wrath we deserve for our sins. So that through the cross, cursed, bitter of heart, God-blaming sinners like you and me could not only be forgiven completely of our sins, but experience the unreasonable love of God. And it is so unreasonable that God would love sinners like us. Who are we that God would be mindful of us, let alone love us as sinners? Who are we? Oh, you know, I know you know in your heart of hearts what you deserve. And yet in Christ, you see what you get. The unreasonable love of God. Over the top. God loving you as Ruth loved Naomi. We can say that Jesus is who? He's your Ruth. Jesus is your Ruth if you know Christ. He's your Ruth. And this unreasonable love, my, my friends, if, if you know it, if you've tasted it, if you've experienced it at all, you know that you can't, you can't hold on to it without being changed. You, you get a hold of the unreasonable love of God that he has for you in Christ, and you absolutely change. You don't have to try to change. You must change by necessity because the love is that powerful. It's that powerful. It changes us in so many ways, but I'm going to give you two before I close because they're magnificent. Number one, this extreme, unreasonable love, if you have it and you know it in Christ, will equip you to live for Christ. You see, once you're saved by grace and you are captured by the love of God, your heart has been captured by the love of God, you will say to Christ, You'll say to Christ what Ruth said to Naomi. You will say to Jesus, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will live for you, Jesus. You will. And if you can't say that, or you say that but you don't mean it, then you haven't been captured by the love of God. I mean that with all gentleness. No longer will you live for yourself, doing what you want to do, going where you you want to go. If you've been captured by the love of God, you have a new identity. It's not you, your accolades, your success, your bank account. It's you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ follow Christ. They go where he goes. They do what he does. Even when the world thinks it's crazy, even when the world tells you don't do that, you will go. William Carey, the, the great 18th century missionary to India, his identity before a missionary, you know who he was? He was a shoemaker. A shoemaker. They said, oh, that's William Carey, the shoemaker. Well, he's known to us in our history books as the, the, the father of missions. Well, that's, that's a pretty different identification. The father of modern missions. Why? Because he, he went where Jesus told him to go. He did what Jesus told him to do. In 1787, two years before the signing of our Constitution, Carey argued, listen, that all Christians had a duty to share the gospel around the world. In other words, he said all Christians are missionaries. 
Speaking at this conference, this is what he was told. Listen, he said, quote, someone said to him, young man, sit down. (laughs) Fascinating. Sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. In other words, William Carey was being told, be what? Be reasonable. Be reasonable. God will save them. Don't worry about it. Undeterred, Carey founded, most of you know, he founded the, Bish- the Baptist Missionary Society in, seven, in 1792, and, and he preached a sermon in the founding of this. And one of his famous quotes, which you've probably heard before, he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. You could replace that, expect unreasonable things from God, attempt unreasonable things for God. The next year, he took his family to India. He saw no conversions for seven years. Talk about a rough church start. Seven years, zero members. His son, Peter, died of dysentery. His wife suffered from mental illness to an extreme degree during those first seven years. He wrote this in his journal during that time. This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me, God. Listen to what he writes. He says, but I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding and you are with me. 1800, he gets his first baptism, first member. And for the next 20 years, hundreds come to a saving grace in Christ and William Carey translated the Bible, translated the word of God into dozens of Indian languages and dialects so that through his translation, tens of thousands and possibly millions have come to a saving grace through him. How'd that happen? He lived for Christ. He did what Christ told him to do. He went where Christ told him to go. Be captured by the love of God You will go where Jesus goes, you'll lodge where Jesus lodges, and God's people will be your people. But if you're gonna live for Christ, then no longer can you be separated from the people of God. Listen with all your might, my beloved, in our cultural moment, this is a hard thing. Sunday morning for an hour is not being devoted to the family of God. Seeing someone on a Wednesday evening in a small group is not the community of God that God imagined, and certainly that he prescribed in the word. If the love of God has captured your heart, you will say, God, your people will be my people, my family, to know, to serve, to love. In other words, the church will take precedence in your life. It won't be your life and you touch the church. It'll be your life in the church. Not acquaintances. Do you find it at all odd that We call ourselves brothers and sisters and yet acquaintances define us more often than not than brother or sister in the family of God. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? See you next Sunday. Good good to see you, buddy. This is doing life together. This is laughing together, crying together, growing together, struggling together. To live for Christ is to say, God, your people are my people. To live for Christ is to say, God, you are my God. No longer worshiping the false idols. No longer bowing down and being pulled by those 
desires that are not pleasing to the Lord. You'll live for Christ if your heart's been captured by the unreasonable love of God. You will say to Christ, and then you will do it. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But there's a second thing that will happen. And I think this is where we really know that we've tapped into this unreasonable love. When, when God pours out his storehouse of love on you in Christ, and you respond in your love and worship of God, then you're going to begin to love others unreasonably. You're going to begin to love others as Christ loves you. What do I mean by unreasonably? In the Western world, we relate to people, brothers and sisters in Christ, family, friends, neighbors. Our love is regulated by our flesh, strictly regulated by our flesh. In other words, we love to the degree that it is comfortable for us. Not too costly, not too sacrificial, and certainly not to the degree that it will compromise our personal happiness. After all, rationally speaking, self-love is what I should be doing. In other words, our love for one another is a very reasonable, very shallow love. It is a love like Orpah and not like Ruth. But if you are captured by the unreasonable love that God has for you in Christ, if your heart is ensnared, and what a great thing to be ensnared by, by the love of God, then your rational, shallow love for others will turn into an unreasonable, deep love for others. The love of God equips us to to love others as Ruth loves Naomi. In fact, it gives you the resources. It's this love that gives you the resources to love others as Christ loves you. I mean, that, that is the command that Jesus gave us, right? John chapter 13, Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's a Ruth to Naomi love. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know what? That you're my disciples. You want to know that you're a disciple? You want others to know your disciples? I'll see it in how you love one another. Jesus, my beloved, he's able to give this command not because he believes we have the willpower to do it. He knows your self-love regulates all love to others. He knows that apart from the power of the Spirit, your love will be shallow, minimal, not costly, always about you, and then someone else. He gives this command because Christ knows the transformative power of the love of God. He knows that if you are captured by God's love in Christ, then you will, listen, you will out of necessity, you will love one another. You won't be able to hold it back. You can't hold it back if you've been captured by the unreasonable love of God. That means, my beloved, this is a true story, when you hear about a sister in the church who just finished up with chemotherapy for breast cancer and she's $5,000 in debt because she can't pay her medical bills. It means that you will anonymously pay for her $5,000 even though you're not rich and you don't have much savings either. But you will do that, why? You'll do that because one, you love her. She's your sister. But you'll also do it because you know that in Christ you're what? You're rich, you're rich, you're rich. You have all the blessings of heaven if you're in Christ. 
you know that, so you will bless this sister like this. You may hear that one of our seniors in church, a widow, maybe she's lonely, and you know that. And so you say, you know what? Two Saturdays a month, I'm going I'm to go to her house, and, and, and I'm going to make her a meal, and we're going to play cards, and I'm going to spend time with her, and I'm going to do a little cleaning around her house. I'm going to love her like that. And you immediately think, well, that, that person must have a lot of time. No, this person's schedule is equally cramped like all of ours. But she's going to sacrifice and serve out of her love for this widow because she knows that Jesus Christ gave up time and eternity to have her for eternity. And at some point in time, in the fullness of time, time will not be a problem. And so we can sacrifice it now. We can sacrifice it joyfully. Friends, it's reasonable to hate your enemies and get back at those who have inflicted you wrongly. But how much better, how much better would your life be and the lives of others be if we, through the unreasonable love of God, loved our enemies and prayed for those who persecuted us? can't do that apart from Christ. You can't do that in Christ. It's reasonable to look after your own interests. But how much better would our lives be and our neighbors' lives be if we not only looked after our own interests, but what Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, the interests of others, really looking after them, caring for them. It's reasonable for the victim of adultery to want to divorce her husband, but how much better would our homes be and our children be and our society be if the unreasonable love of God enabled spouses to forgive unreasonably, to stay the course in a marriage that had been broken by adultery, to love someone as Christ loves us. How much better? So much better. So much better. Friends, the Bible does not call you to forsake reason and live foolish lives. But it does reveal that the unreasonable love that God has for sinful man, that love has the power to capture the human heart and put reason in its proper place. And the love for God and the love for others where it belongs as the first and second greatest commandments. I'll close with this. If all your choices or most of your choices that you make you make by what seems reasonable to you, to your flesh, to the world. If you can't think of two or three people in your life that you love, like Ruth loves Naomi, and not counting your family, not only will you miss the blessings that Ruth and Naomi enjoyed in this unreasonable love covenant relationship, but it may reveal that your heart has never been captured by the love of God. It may reveal, if your heart has not been captured by the love of God in this life, my beloved, then you will not know that love in the next. God's unreasonable love, it equips us, sinners saved by grace, to live for Christ and to live for one another. A way of life, my beloved, in his kingdom that is reasonable and beautiful beyond measure. It is a much better way to live. I pray that in the story of Ruth and Naomi, you will see that, and you will live like that too. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we admit this is challenging. You're calling us to love you and love one another sacrificially. Where it hurts, it's uncomfortable. And we readily admit, Father, that in the West we, we submit more to reason in what's, what's in line with self-love than we do with loving others. And so I ask, Lord, that you would not only forgive us, but equip us. Equip us by showing us the radical all-in love that Christ has for us, for all who have repented and believed. Show us that love, Lord, that, that he revealed through the cross by literally giving up everything that he might have us. People, sinners, so undeserving. And in this unreasonable love that we experience in Christ, I pray that you would cultivate a deep love for you and for one another in our hearts. Spirit, you must do this work, so I ask that you would. Do not leave us bound to our self-love. Do not leave us enslaved to our Western reason. Capture us as only you can and then cultivate day by day and month by month a radical love for you that the world sees, that we see, so that we might know and the world might know that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Cause it to pour forth from us, I pray, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.